Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about how they got into the industry, uh, talk about their process and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Um, There is a great back catalogue of previous guests there, authors, screenwriters, video game writers, journalists, so please do check that out because there's bound to be some people that uh, you know and might have some good tips for you. Um, And we have another great guest this week. We do indeed. Uh, This week we're chatting with the incredible Joanne Harris. Uh, She's the international best-selling author of books, perhaps best known for Chocolat, uh, but also written books such as The Gospel of Loki and, of course, her latest novel, A Narrow Door, which is a psychological thriller set in the English grammar school. Um, she's written, I mean, really has written a lot of books, uh, yeah. a lot of different series of books, a lot of different Across genres. Across genres, yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, no, it was really interesting speaking to her because obviously she's she's a, a really well-known name in the uh, British literature scene and is also the chair of the Society of Authors as well. Yeah. So we, we talk a lot about... Um, you know, how she found an agent, which is very different from from how uh, you find an agent now. And also uh, talk about, you know, the state of the publishing industry at the moment. And, yeah. you know, it's easier some in some ways to get your book published, but there are risks to that. So we, we yeah. chat in about all of that. It's a really interesting chat. And we talk as well about her writing process. And we go into a bit of depth on that, which is uh, really interesting. So we will get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then uh, we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest but for now on with the podcast the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head so how to overcome that fear well we all know the best advice for a writer is Right. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realized you need to plan how to let people read it. So we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be an author? I did, but I didn't tell anybody because um, I had a rather rough awakening from my mother when I told her that I wanted to be an author. And she said, look, all authors die poor. And she showed me a, a wall of books by French 19th century novelists, all of whom died penniless in the gutter of syphilis. And she said, no, this is why you need a proper job. And so I went into teaching, which was what she had done and her father had done and my father had done. And, uh, and I stayed there for a while until I finally came out and, and said, you know, I'd like to write books now. And uh, am I right in saying, though, that, that you were, from an early age, you were, you were writing stories that were, I think, 
I read they were influenced by sort of North mythology and Greek Grimm's fairy tales and things like that. Is that right? Oh, yes. I've been writing. I've been writing since I was very small. Um, I just didn't think you could make a living doing it. Mm-hmm. But I always did it because I think, you know, as a reader, I just wanted to to read more things that hadn't been written. And so I started with various folklore and myth-based things and 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 did what a lot of kids do and copied the the people that I enjoyed reading. And uh, while you were a teacher, you were writing, as you're saying, through all that time. And that was a point when your first novel came around, Evil Seed. Is that right? That's right. Yes. I, I, I wrote three books while I was a teacher and they, they came out during that time. But my, my first book was a book that I'd started when I was still at university. And uh, it took me a while to to get a publisher for it. And it uh, and of course, it sank without trace, as so many first novels do. But uh, I'm still quite fond of it in my way. And and it's had its moment because it's now back in print again. Oh, nice. Well, I did want to ask about that because, you know, what was your what was your process at that point when you were you're just starting out, you know, you're not in the writing world yet, you're a teacher and you've written this book. What did you do to try and find an agent to get it out there? Well, initially, I didn't try and find an agent at all. I tried to contact publishers directly and then realised through trial and error that that really doesn't work. <laughs> and and then I just went through the writer's handbook and, and looked for an agent there. Um, of course, I did everything wrong because I had no idea how agents work or what they do. And because weekends were the only time I had, I tried phoning them at weekends, which isn't the great way to get an agent <laughs> because it meant that most of them weren't in the office. And it took me a while to twig this, but I, I finally got an agent who worked from home. Uh, his name was Richard <laughs> Golner. And and he kind of, you know, he, I, I managed to talk him into, first of all, reading my manuscript and then eventually taking me on. Do you, do you think that it's not easier to get an agent now, but certainly there's a lot more information for for author for writers now to try and find agents and follow a certain process now? Do you, do you think that's yes. become easier over time? Yeah, it's it's much easier because now now that there's the internet and that you can directly connect with people, you can you can learn from other people's experience. You can often connect directly with agents and find out exactly what their requirements are. You don't just have to leaf through the writer's handbook and hope that somebody answers the phone first thing on a Saturday morning. But, uh, no, I mean, it's still quite hard to get one because, of yeah. course, <laughs> no agent wants to take on somebody that they don't believe in or that they don't think is commercial enough to sell. But, yes, I think there's, there are ways to educate yourself that exist now that didn't when I was starting off. And so my education was very slow and quite painful because it, it had to go through all these these stages of making mistakes and being rejected and not knowing what to do. It's, it's something that I've always wondered about because obviously you do have all that new information available now if, if you're starting out. But at the same time, certainly it appears that because of that, there is a lot more... There are a lot more people submitting to agents and all that sort of stuff. Now, I'm not sure if that's just an appearance thing and it's because you see it on social media and things like that and you get the, that impression, or if more people are trying to do it now. I don't know if you've got any insights into that. It's a bit hard to know, of course, because I didn't see it happening when I first joined, but I know that my agent was getting a lot of unsolicited manuscripts. I mean, he was a solo operator, so he wasn't part of a big agency. But uh, when I went down to, to see him, I would always see these stacks of manuscripts. And of course, they were manuscripts in those mm-hmm. days, yeah. too. Um, and he had the most colossal slush pile. And, and at one point, I said, you know, what are you going to do with these manuscripts? And he says, use them for scrap paper. I don't have time <laughs> to read them. I don't have time to pay someone to read them. If they haven't appealed to me by the end of the cover letter, that's what they'll do. And, and, you know, in those days, you were encouraged to type on one side of the paper only. And that was why, because agents use them for scrap. And so I, I volunteered <laughs> to go through his slush pile. And, right. and there were about 70 manuscripts in there. And he said, you know, if I were you, I would give each one five minutes because you'll know. And he was right. I did. Mm-hmm. Some of them were barely literate. Some of them were basically written in crayon. Um, it was that there is a huge wash of people wanting to send books to someone but I think you know in those days certainly people had no idea what would make them publishable or desirable and there was this idea that you could just send it off to some magical money fairy who would then send you fame fortune and 
the right not to work again. And so I think now you know more about the business because if you if you are prepared to educate yourself and find out exactly what it is that agents want, then you've got an advantage. But I see a lot of people who, although they've done that, they don't want to go through the gatekeepers. They want to somehow avoid them, yeah. mm-hmm. which which means that there's still a tremendous span of of ability and saleability and commercial. I mean, it's it's it is good that many alternatives exist outside of big publishing because big publishing has shrunk in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's it's its horizons have shrunk because after the death of the netbook agreement, it became obvious that if you wanted to shift a lot of books, they had to be books by somebody that the public had heard of. And so they started pushing the top of the list and they allowed the mid list to die, which was very sad and and not great for the book trade in my view, but not not great for the readers either. Mm -hmm. Because what it came down to was less choice Mm -hmm. for everybody. And so various groups like Unbound have been popping up and have been giving alternatives to people who would normally have been mid-list authors in big publishers, but now publishing has shrunk that out of existence, are looking elsewhere. And and I think that's great. It's it's a really wonderful opportunity for people, but it, it's it's also meant that there are various sharks out there who have evolved their own way of preying on the hopeful by offering what seem like deals, but actually are just vanity publishing contracts, which, yeah. which is very different from self-publishing, but which I think some people go for just because they are desperate and they feel that that's the only way to get their book in print. It's so true, isn't it? It's, it's been such a massive change in the publishing world over the last 20, 30 years, whatever, you know, mm. as you say, the rise of, you know, to put books out yourself, which you could never really do viably until recently. You've got, the internet you've got emails you've got stuff like covid where people are at home more you've got people working absolutely you know it's there must be i mean there must be such a massive influx of which is great on the one hand because you've got loads of people who have were never given the opportunity to be a published author who are now given the opportunity Mm. but i suppose on the other hand from the agency and the publisher's point of view is it's way more stuff to look at and it's to to sift through and it's it's that kind Mm. of that's that sword isn't it It's, it's 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 a really interesting time it is, it is. And of course, now um, most publishers don't look at anything that's unsolicited. Mm-hmm. So everything, you know, if you do want to go with a, a traditional publisher, the agent route is really the only way to do it now because I don't trust publishers who say that they are looking for unagented writers because there's a reason that they're doing that. And the reason is usually because they're not going to give the author a very good deal. Um, But there there does need to be a kind of relationship, I think, between the person who is hoping to have the book sold um, and the publisher, because otherwise they will be in a situation where they have to hire somebody and pay them to read yeah, maybe 800 manuscripts a week. Yeah. yeah. And no, that's not going to work. And that's, that's not a model that any normal publisher can, can follow. So yeah, people are looking elsewhere and it's good. I mean, it's, it's good that there are opportunities for those who are prepared to, to look into other alternatives. But I'm also really quite worried about the rise in vanity publishers by some other name mm-hmm. who are actually actively targeting the elderly people who are not terribly internet savvy um people who are likely to have the sort of money that they can splash out on what they think is actually a traditional publishing deal and which isn't i mean there's actually nothing wrong with vanity publishing a project if you want to do that if you know that that's what yeah, you're doing and if, yeah. if you know that what you're you're doing is effectively printing on demand the book that you want to print. I mean, I've done it myself. I've done it with photo books on Lulu. Mm. Um, I'm always doing this. I make these little hardback photo books for for my daughter and my family, and they're lovely, and and I pay to have them printed, and that's fine. Each one costs me about 20 quid. But, you know, you have other um, publishers who are describing themselves as not being vanity publishers, but actually what it amounts to is they are approaching people via various magazines like Saga um, because they know who their demographic is mm-hmm. and and they are then getting these people to pay between five and 15 grand to have their book 
published and promising promotion and obviously not delivering, which is which is tremendously sad and wrong. If we're seeing a, a massive rise in the number of people that are submitting books, you know, if, if we're seeing agents that are getting bigger and bigger slush piles and more and more submissions every, every week, why do you, why is it then that on the flip side we're seeing the publishing world contract and, and merges? You know, why is that not leading to more books being published and more more deals being made and more public more more houses to take on more authors? It seems to be a real kind of bottleneck, or it seems to be contracting on one end and expanding at the other, which is a very strange way forward. Well, I think this is about the pricing of books. And when I joined the industry, and it seems very long ago now because there has been so much change, but when I, when I joined, the netbook agreement still existed, which meant that there was no difference in the pricing of a book regardless of where you bought it. You could buy a book in a supermarket or an independent bookshop or one of the many bookshop chains that existed still then. And if it was priced at $12.99, then it would be sold at $12.99. There was no way that you could you could have a bug off or a, a two-for-one deal or anything like that. It just didn't exist mm-hmm. because publishers had the netbook agreement in place, which meant that basically prices all across the board were a level playing field, which meant that there was no advantage in let's say, perusing the tables at Waterstones and choosing a three-for-two offer of people who are named and that you know, as opposed to going into the stacks and getting a book by somebody you never heard of at full price. Mm-hmm. Basically, it didn't matter whether you were Stephen King or Joe Bloggs, your book would be priced at about the same price point. And that was, that was a real leveler of opportunity because it meant that there was no incentive to to buy the next thing by by the next celebrity and there was there was no no way that you could you could suddenly get a book for 199 somewhere because it, it just wasn't the way publishers operated and then the floodgates were opened to what seemed like something really good to publishers at the time you know they could sell limitless copies of books pretty much anywhere they liked and they could have these these incentive deals which allowed people to shift a lot of units what it meant though was that the market although it meant that yes indeed big publishers did sell more books it sold more copies but fewer choices and so basically you know you got the top 30 books in a year selling mega numbers and everybody else's sales trailing off because there was no incentive to buy them. You know, no, no incentive to buy a new book at $12.99 when you could get three books that, that were by people you'd heard of for much less. And so, you know, that kind of killed the choice and the mid-list and the niche markets. And it meant that the risk aversion that publishing has always felt actually got more and more and more. And so they could only, they felt that they could only take a punt on something that felt like a dead cert. The thing is anybody who's ever been involved in betting will know that, you know, if you bet on a certainty, you won't win much. Yeah. It is the, the big risk that gets you the big, the big payoff. And sometimes the big risk doesn't pay off. And that's, that's, you know, yeah. swings and roundabouts. Yeah. That's how it works. But they're not doing that anymore in the same way they were when, when I joined at all. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, the public is, is having to look elsewhere outside of big publishing for what it wants. It's yeah. definitely true as well that, 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 you know, and I'm guilty of it myself, you know, that it, I will always look at the price of a book as well as, what the book you know of course if, i'm interested in the story but if i can get as you say three three for two or whatever whatever the deal is then of course that, that's, that's what we've come attractive. to expect yeah. and it, you can you true. can look at this and it's an incentive to buy but it also means that the diversity and the novelty and the various interests that you might have had access to shrink because of that expectation and and it's it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy and we've now got an industry that has no middle. Yeah. It's just got debuts or big stars. And there's yeah. a big hole in the middle which has had to be filled somewhere by by something else. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I mean, we've, we've kind of got sidetracked there from we were wanting, we were so you got the evil 
Seed was your first book. And then um, I think the Sleep and Pale Sister came after that. But Sleep Pale Sister is one book. Yeah, oh, but sorry. Yes, it came sorry. out after um, that with um, a different publisher. It, it was um, Sh- Chocolat, obviously, was, was the big breakthrough novel for yourself. I mean, when you wrote that, did it feel to you like it, this is the one that is going to be the thing? Or was it just a, another book that you were happy with, obviously? But you, you know, do you know why that one in particular hit, hit home? Well, I think people? that one, I didn't think it was going to sell at all. I'd been told that I was writing stuff that was pretty much unmarketable because it was too different and too British and or too European. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, I'd had my, my two hits. And if you don't get success after two books in publishing, generally, the feeling was then and still is that, you're probably not going to make it in the mm. way that they would like you to make it. And so mm. people were very hesitant to take chocolat. And I've been told that if I wanted to, to be successful, I would have to woo the American market. And so my, my uh, agent sent one of my, my then manuscripts uh, to one of his uh, colleagues in the States, a guy called Al Zuckerman. Uh, who had written a book called How to Write the Blockbuster Novel. <laughs> and Al Zuckerman sent me back like 20 pages of notes on why why I was doing it all wrong. And he said, well, you know, first of all, you've got to think of the American market. You've got to have American characters. You've got to set it in an American city. And, you know, all these little village stories, they're not going to work because most Americans live in cities and so they want big stories and big landscapes. And, yeah, what's with the food? Why is there so much food in this book? You just get rid of that because unless you want to write a cookbook, that's not going to work. And, you know, would it kill you to have a sex scene and a car chase and you know, all the things that make a book really exciting? Um, and, and yeah, why, why all the old people? Why are there so many old people in your story? And, and you know, just, just write it back from scratch. Think about, uh, about, you know, what I'd said and Americans having sex in a city maybe with some young people around and, and read some Mary Higgins Clark and learn and so I went off and wrote Chocolat which was entirely based in the tiniest <laughs> village in Europe which is full of food stuffed full of food um old people from wall to wall because you know I was I was teaching in a, a boys grammar school I had a lot of rather elderly male members of staff around me and so I kind of took what inspiration I could and you know, it's, and and inexplicably, it's it it suddenly took off in this way that I don't think even you know even the publisher understood. I, I had a, I had quite a a tough time getting it accepted, and when they did accept it, I think you know they didn't quite know what they were going to do with it until until they'd seen it come out in Italy, right. which happened six months before it was published in England. Quite unusually, okay. And and they saw how big it had become in Italy. And instead of bringing it out quietly as a paperback original, they decided to bring it out as a hardback. And 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 so they they kind of followed suit in that way. But yes, there was no there was no real expectation of it doing much at all. But you know, sometimes these these books take off, and it it's a word of mouth thing. Yeah, mm, absolutely. And, and I wondered going forward because I mean I think I know what the answer is to this now. But if if there was something that you'd you know, some technique or some trick or something that you'd learned from writing that book that you thought, right, well, now I can, I've cracked it. I can apply this to the rest of my books because you've been a continued bestseller ever since. But it seems like even you were unclear as to why this book suddenly seemed to connect so strongly. I think it was, it was because publishing was ready for something different. I think that's really what it was. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not pretending that I invented what I do, but certainly at the time, Literary fiction was dominated by some quite bleak, minimalist writing. And because my publishers were selling Chocolat as a a piece of literary fiction, the literary world got this book, which was completely the opposite, which was full of all this splashy description and this food and this sensuous stuff going on. And I think it was just a welcome change from some of those quite dark and worthy issues based books and this was complete escapism and it was saying you know you're allowed to enjoy life and eat and drink and be merry and and all these things and I think it was it was a lucky time for a book like that to appear 
I hadn't planned it that way, but certainly it it seemed that way with the public and with publishing. And all of a sudden there was this rash of other books about food with, you know, with, with food in the title. And I could see that mm-hmm. not only were people doing that because of my book, but they were also copying my book jackets and 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 somebody coined this god awful term gastromance and and started applying <laughs> it to what I was doing. And I thought, oh no. <laughs> it certainly started some ripples and and I was completely unaware of it doing that. And then, of course, the movie helped to to broaden yes, the reach absolutely. even further. Yeah. I mean, it, it is something that, that so many of our guests have said is that, you know, it's not obviously the writing of the thing is important, the, the, the story and the characters and everything. But there is always an element of luck, of timing that some the right person or the right book comes out at the right time and it just captures the people's imagination. And that's obviously not something that you can plan for. It is just... Um, no, that's right. You, you can't. Mm-hmm. And yes, the luck, the luck side of it, I think, does improve if, if you work on the work side of yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, some very good things never get picked up and some, you know, some books just fail the first time and, and you start again. 10 years later and they and they work then so yes there is this element of luck and but it, it helps enormously if you just keep going and, and mm. you, you try and and consolidate what you've done and it's it's very easy to get discouraged I think for some people so sometimes there's a pain barrier that needs to be pushed through yeah definitely and ever since then you know you've I mean looking at your list of books you've put out it's you've really written so many it's a huge number of books and they've all been very successful and we were chatting with um, Stephen Graham Jones on a previous episode, and he he um, had written. He was putting out multiple books every year, and he was told at one point by his publisher to slow down. And they said, you know, let your <laughs> books breathe between releases, let them find an audience type thing. And and that didn't seem like something that you've done. You 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 put on a, a really incredible number of books, and I wondered how would you avoid overwhelming your readers? Is, is it a case of having <gasps> your little mini series that you kind of? slot them into different genres and let people read or is it a case of just of just having a, a, a readership that just can't get enough of your books it's interesting because I never really had a strategy I basically I've always written what I wanted to write and I've never really thought about genres or markets we've got publishers to do that for us there there's endless sales and marketing people to do that but I found that there's there's a big there's a tremendous breadth of, of demographic across my books. And so there are people who read pretty much anything I've written because they just want to see what I did next. And those are the kind of hardcore fans and they won't necessarily like everything, but they will try everything because they're following me. And then there are people who will only read the books set in France or only read the thrillers or only read the fantasy books. And so there are these three strands of development there um, and the challenge is to, to, you know, keep those moving because actually publishers like authors to write a book a year. Obviously, I can't write three books a year, but I can try and cycle those things so that one strand doesn't disappear for too long. And, and mm. I found that I've got a kind of feel now of how long it takes me to get back into a zone. It takes me about five, six years to get back into doing the second installment in something which is nominally a series or to revisit a world that I've been before. And pretty much everything I write stands alone in its way, but there are also series of returning characters where Mm. people just get really attached to the characters and they want to know what happens next, which I think is nice, but I'm also constantly thinking about challenging myself and hopefully hopefully doing something new so that I can learn from this and I don't, you know, just stagnate, which was always my fear mm-hmm. when Chocolat came out that I would be somehow forced into this little corner yeah. Yeah. and forced to duplicate that over and over again. And I, I made it very clear that, that that wasn't what I was planning to do. And then when I felt that I had space and a loyal readership, then I felt able to go back into that world and go, okay, this time has passed. I am now going to do this. And I didn't have the sort of feeling that people were just humoring me and waiting for the next chocolate book, which which would have been a problem if that had happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and does does that 
um, fear, not fear of stagnation, but you know, not wanting to stagnate. Does does writing in the different genres taking time to step out of one world and go into another one, if you like, help with the the creativity? Does it help avoid things like writer's block and things like that? because you're taking such a different step each time? I think it probably does help. It also helps that I don't generally work on just one thing at once. Because what I tend to do with my process is I'll usually take a book to a certain point and then I need a rest time and I need to, sometimes I need to do some research or sometimes it just needs time to just simmer for a bit, during which time I'll work on something else. So usually I've got two books on the go, sometimes more than two books, so that I can feel the, de- the development of, of the story happening in a sort of natural, organic way, rather than me having to stay on one track and, you know, perhaps, you know, just run out of ideas at one point and, and, and panic because running out of ideas is never something that, that you want to do as a writer. But if that happens, then I realized that, okay, the book just needed a bit of space. I can move to another track and work on something else and not feel that I'm under tremendous pressure to continue with something that, that's, that isn't going to evolve as quickly as, as let's say a publisher might want it to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, I, I bring out generally a book a year, but it, it will take me four or five years sometimes to write that book. Mm-hmm. because something else is also happening next to it. And so my publishers have, have managed to maintain this kind of illusion of me writing a book here, but that's not <laughs> at all how it's worked, of course, because you know, that's just the magic of publishing when, when they want to. Well, what, what is the actual uh, process that you do that when you sit down to write, you know, you're kind of Stephen King, I put the nine to five in and then it's, you know, to get words on the page, or are you more flexible and, write the evenings and the mornings and whenever the kind of mood strikes you? I, I will write when I can, when there isn't something else going on mm-hmm. and when I have reasonable circumstances. And because I was a teacher for such a long time and I wrote in my free time and with whatever free time there was, I'm quite good at doing that. And I'm also quite good at, you know, if I'm traveling, working in airports and, and on trains and, and this kind of thing, because sometimes that's the time that you've got. And so I've never needed to have ideal circumstances. It's quite nice to have ideal circumstances, but that's, that's not what I need. And I don't do the nine to five thing because, you know, I did that when I was a teacher and I feel that I don't have to do that anymore. So I, I will generally, if I can, if I do have ideal circumstances, I'll start in the morning. Um, when my daughter was small, I liked to start very early because I could get a day's work in before she got up. Now I, I have a bit more flexibility, but I still tend to work best in the mornings. Um, so what I tend to do when I open the laptop is I will read aloud whatever I wrote in the previous session. This is, I think, the most important part of my process in that it gets me into the zone. And also it means that I can baby edit everything that I did previously, which means that the text that I'm coming up with is pretty clean by the end of the first draft. And because I think reading aloud is the best editorial tool an author has, it's something that I rely on to make sure that the pattern of phrases and words and the dialogue feels right and and just the, the general algorithmic movement of the language works. Um, so yes, so usually I, I've, and I will write whatever gets written that day. I don't count words. I don't have targets in that way because I don't think it's helpful to me. I think putting myself under more pressure is, is probably not going to help me perform better. So I, I don't do that. And on days when I really can't work, I will try nevertheless to write 300 words. If it's a super busy day, 300 words will keep me in that place where I'm still thinking about the book. Um, and it doesn't take very long to do. And so you don't, as a, as a writer, have the excuse of, oh, I had a super busy day today, so I couldn't write. And I mean, it's okay to do that once or twice. But after a while, you don't work on a book. And after about a week, it goes feral. And then you have to read all of it again. <laughs> and and that's that's not great for anybody's process. So I like to keep, you know, this... I like to keep it bubbling 
mm-hmm. without necessarily having to do vast swathes of work every single day because yeah, it's not possible for anybody. Yeah. yeah. And so, so it sounds then, as you say, that you have quite a clean first draft by the, by the end of that process. Um, what do, at that point, are you sending it off to your agent, to your editor? What, what happens after that? It depends. It depends how I feel about it. Um, some books write themselves quite smoothly. And by the end of the first draft, I've got something that I think is ready enough, at least, to have a second opinion. Sometimes by the end of the first draft, I realize that the thing that I actually need to fix is the continuity and the plot. Most of the time, my second edit is a structural one. Um, So sometimes I'll do that before sending it off. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I even send chunks of an unfinished manuscript off to my agent and my editor just because I want to see how they're reacting to it and so yeah I did this with Chocolat with my with my agent and I just sent her whatever I'd written that week every week it was like sending a serial story out but you know I would I would send her about 20 pages every week or so and by the end of it she she got the full thing and she was and I could tell that she was excited by it and so it kind of kept me it yeah. kept me keen, but yeah. I'm not sure I'd work that way with an editor now. I think it's 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 probably I think giving an editor something too early can can sometimes be the kiss of death for something that's not completely formed in yeah. your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, your latest novel is a narrow door, um, and it's part of your series of novels that's set at St Oswald's Grammar School. And um, before we chat about it properly, why don't you we let you tell us a little bit about what the book's about and um, and what, what the themes and stuff are? Well, this is a standalone novel, but it's also part of a series in that it's set at a boys' grammar school, not entirely unlike the one that I taught called St Oswald's, and it's the third uh, book in, in, in this series. And, and the hero is a Latin teacher called Roy Straitley, who is well past retirement age now, but who is still teaching because he doesn't have anything else Poor Straitly. He loves St. Oswald. (laughs) He loves his job. He doesn't have a family. Um, And honestly, he has no idea what what he would do if he retired. And so he's kept on throughout these three books. And in each case, there has been a new, worse challenge for St. Oswald to deal with. Um, This one is, in fact, worse than any of them, because St. Oswald's School for Boys has now become St. Oswald's Academy for Boys and Girls. Um, and so Straitly, who is one of the old guard um, and has his own rather traditional ideas about how a school should be run, now has to deal with not only girls in the school. And he, it's not that he dislikes girls exactly, but as he says, you know, they're a little bit like kittens and ice cream, very nice in their place, but not great in the classroom. Um, and <laughs> there is also a headmistress, the first headmistress St. Oswald's has had in 500 years. And she is a woman called Rebecca Buckfast, who he knows because he's met her before. She was at the school the previous year as part of the crisis team that was supposed to dig St. Oswald's out of its financial difficulties. She has stayed on as the headmistress and she has she has a story to tell. I knew in the previous book that she would have, but this one is a story of damage and murder and loss and grief. And it starts with the discovery of a body or what a group of boys think is a body mm-hmm. in the grounds of St. Oswald's, in the earthworks of one of the new buildings that the headmistress is planning. And Straitly, who finds out about it early because he has his ear to the ground, um, goes straight to the headmistress, who already knows. And so this is, this is a, a slowly unfolding story within a story where these two characters are going to interact um, and yes, it's um, it's a story about smashing the patriarchy, but it's also a story about the past and how the past is inescapable um, and makes us who we are. It's a really interesting um, way you tell a story in which you are jumping back and forth between the two characters um, and you get even often the same scene or conversation or lead up to a conversation that's told from one person and jumps to the other. And is that quite a tricky <laughs> thing to plan out and to write and is that is that quite uh was that quite exciting to, to write a story in that kind of unusual way well it's not unusual for me 
Um, I've been doing it almost since the start, and I've done it in almost all of my books, that there have been these dialogues going on between central characters. In virtually everything I've written, it happened with Chocolat, it happened with books before Chocolat. Sorry. And so, yeah, I mean, it's something that now comes naturally to me. And I've always thought of these dual narratives as being like, a bit like two cameras giving you slightly different perspectives of the same scene, sometimes radically different perspectives. And so you can use them to allow interaction, to allow the audience to understand an internal monologue and character motives without them having to be verbalized. It's also quite good when you're writing a story of misdirection like this one, um, in which Buckfast tells straightly certain things Mm -hmm. but also tells you the reader other things that straightly doesn't know and so you get a much bigger picture of what's going on than than either of the two characters because actually you also understand that there's a lot that Buckfast doesn't understand about herself and her motivations and you get that too so the reader becomes becomes much more informed and has a much uh, a much better view of the this drama unfolding and I, I like that and the the structure of the novel and, and telling a story like that strikes me as something that um, you would have to plan out quite carefully before you start writing it. Because like you say, when Buckfast is revealing things to the reader, it, it's important as to, that those things are only revealed at that specific moment. Otherwise, you know, it, she's in, she's in until the end of the book, she knows quite a lot of what is happened has happened you know the 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 that's right yes. the, the whole story um and you ha- i suppose it's a case of you have to structure that well so that it's drip fed in the right way and and the reader finds out what you want them to find out at the right time yes it, it, sometimes it it's it's a bit difficult to assemble mm-hmm. um in fact a narrow door came quite easily i think i've i've got used to the rhythms of these developments and the beats of them and usually I don't have to unpick everything and, and restructure anymore. I have done that in the past. And of course, one of the great things about Microsoft Word is that actually you al- you're allowed to do that. And it makes it look as if you'd, you'd cleverly designed it that way from the start. <laughs> but I had a pretty good idea of Buckfast's backstory anyway, because um, I reused a story that, that I'd tried before um, and I modified it, and it was it was for a screenplay. It was uh, it was a, a screenplay for a show that didn't get made, which is most shows actually that writers write. And I thought, you know, there's there's the heart of a good story in here. I might use it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a sort of ghost story. It was a kind of supernatural set in a school um, with a young teacher who has been bereaved very early in her life has lost her older brother who actually went to that school and who has been damaged and who who has now decided that that she is going to try and find out what happened to and I thought okay this I'm going to use this story because I can see that as her backstory and so I kind of inserted it into what was going on and it seemed to work quite nicely because I found myself shuttling back and forth in time to a much younger Rebecca Buckfast um, and then back to the person she has become. And the question became, how did she get that way? How, how did she go from this, this damaged, quite difficult individual to this, this, this woman who apparently is in control of everything and who has now got right to the top of the tree? And, and I had a lot of fun doing that. But yes, I mean, it's, it's I had moments where I just felt okay this is the moment at which I have to draw breath what do I do during that interval I'll give you the story from somebody else and so Straightly would then come in with his story and and his views and the present day scenario which was unfolding at the same time as as Rebecca's story and I found that actually that worked quite well I didn't need to to do any profound restructuring I just needed to at the end of my first draft, flesh out some of the episodes and make them a bit more alive. But is that something that that you 
like did you have quite a strict plan at the start are you someone that plans outlines quite a lot or I had no plan have a, no plan right okay <laughs> honestly I had very little plan um one of the things that I try to do particularly when I'm writing a story like this which is dependent on twists and turns and revelations is that I try not to think too far ahead because I want to maintain the integrity of the character voice and not to have my character serving my plot in a way which is going to diminish their development. And I also quite like the idea that the characters can surprise me, that developments can surprise me, Mm -hmm. because if that happens, then they will probably surprise the reader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one, one thought that I had as I was reading it was that, I mean, as you say, it's set in the school, which is very kind of, traditional in a lot of ways very you know there's old guard as you say the first female head teacher in 500 years etc but on the other hand it deals with a lot of issues that are quite modern I think there's a lot of you know there's you've got the exploration of memory suppressed memory etc one of the pupils in the book is a, is trans and I wondered is it important in your mind as an author to to bring modern issues to the forefront uh, to allow them to be chatted about and discussed to normalize them is that is that important or is that just a healthy byproduct of modern society well i don't even really think of those things as modern issues they're 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 things that have always existed and and what i like to do rather than rather than look at something in a cynical way and go ah yes this plot needs this issue Mm -hmm. in there because i think that's a bit of a plot killer i just like to take an interest in people and the kind of people that I can bring into a story. And so, yes, these things evolve organically alongside the plot in a lot of ways. I didn't realise that that this book was going to be such a feminist book in the sense that much of it is about Buckfast's search for agency and the way these these men around her keep pulling her back and and undermining her her belief in herself and 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 sometimes more, but, you know, I mean, I, I always knew that Ben was going to be trans as soon as I wrote Ben, because, uh, you know, I, I, I just guessed that, that they might go that way, but it, no, it's, it's, it's not something that I plan a lot. I just look at the interpersonal relationships and think, oh yes, this, this is something that's going to be important to this human being Mm -hmm. rather than going, okay, where can I locate these, these modern subjects of conversation to stay relevant that's I mean to me it's quite important that that characters should be both human and believable yeah absolutely and you also brought out this year a honeycomb um, which started out as a series of stories that you were writing on twitter yeah Um, that's right when you were when you were doing the stories on twitter did you at that time did you think I, w- I will gather these together in in the form of of this novel or did that happen afterwards I had no idea I, I had no idea that I was even going to keep them mm-hmm. honestly at the time when I started writing them there was no way of threading stories on Twitter at the time and Twitter was only 140 characters and so mm-hmm. I thought you know these little these sentences that form part of a story, if you are following at that particular time, will just disappear and they will be Twitter ephemera. And I thought there was something rather beautiful about that, the idea that they would just float off like dandelion seeds yeah. and, and that only the people who were following at the time would get the story. Mm-hmm. And I did this for about half a dozen stories and then I realised that the people who were listening were keeping them. They were copying and pasting them and they they would then send me back the story that I'd written as an email going, you know, please keep this story because I really like it and it should be published somewhere. And this was the point at which I thought, okay, maybe I will keep them. Maybe I'll just collect them and and see what they become. Mm -hmm. And I realized because I, I wrote these things just from time to time when I felt like it, I realized that I had returning characters and that I was writing in a very particular style to fit the character limit. Mm-hmm. because without a character limit, I could just go on and on in these endless sentences. But these sentences had to be short and simple, yeah. and they all had to stand alone. And there was only one way to do that, which was to write them on Twitter, and which is why they sound quite different from, you know, the kind of sentences that I would write in my, my other kind of writing. 
And I liked that. There was something a bit mythic about it, a mm-hmm. bit like modern folklore. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you, ask you very, very, very quickly about your you're the chair of the Society of Authors and, you know, what, what sort of work does that entail for you? And is that quite an important role that you, that, 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 that you have, that you, that you see for, see for yourself? Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be the chair of, of, of the management committee. I've been on the management committee for much longer than I've been the chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and together we look at all sorts of aspects of the Society of Authors. We, we obviously we're trustees for the finance side of it, but we also look at development and strategy and, and we deal with all kinds of things. Um, you know, I've learned huge amounts of stuff on the job, really, about things that I didn't know, things about the legal rights of authors, things about um, about the campaigns that the Society of Authors is constantly launching. You know, the, today it was a campaign uh, in support of the Society of Authors in Belarus. Um, but we've also campaigned to put translators on the covers of books, which, which mm-hmm. started with an open letter a couple of weeks ago and, and now Pan Macmillan has said that that's what they're going to do in future and, and yeah, there's there's huge power when you can harness authors and try and bring them together because uh, you know that's but authors rights are constantly being eroded and undermined and authors pay is constantly going down and so authors do need a union mm-hmm. and and the SOA has been extremely supportive of me during my career and so it seems only natural that I should try to do something to help it now and to help other authors who might be in the same position. And, and on, on that theme you've also as well as supporting them in that way you you, you wrote uh, 10 things about writing which was sort of to, to help people get, and you, you're also on Twitter you give out some writing advice as well. I mean um, is that Again, something just a, an element of giving back that well, people have given yeah. to you. I think it's probably being a, a, an ex-teacher. You can't quite stop yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that on Twitter I was getting a lot of questions about writing. And so rather than just keep answering the same ones over and over again, I started doing these 10 things lists. Mm-hmm. And people would give requests and they would go, do one about editors or do one about this. And, and so I would I would take these requests until I had... I'd covered so much that I thought, actually, this this could be a book. And people kept telling me that they wanted it to be a book. And so during lockdown, when all of a sudden people on furlough were there with time on their hands, a lot of people who had always promised themselves that if they had time, they would write a book, wanted to do it. And, mm-hmm. and they didn't really quite know how to start. And so I very quickly put all this stuff together and and reshaped it into something that made linear sense and had it published by a small publisher because small publishers needed all the support they could get during lockdown and and, and brought it out as an ebook so that people could use it pretty much straight away and that was an interesting thing to do and it was it was lots of fun but yeah I mean it's it's writing advice has always been something that I've been able to give on on Twitter and Twitter's very it's a very conversational medium so it does actually just yeah. feel as if you've tapped someone on the shoulder and asked them a question. Yeah. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with doing that. I've got my YouTube channel where I've done that too. And yeah, people need, sometimes they need to know the basics of something. And I think when, when I think back to what I was like and not knowing the basics of anything, I think, okay, well, you know, I could have done with knowing this yeah. 30 years ago. And, and now I'll tell somebody who, who, who might not spend all that time making mistakes and, and who might actually start from a, a slightly higher, higher level of competence. You know, like for, and, and so many other jobs you would, you would go, you would start a new job somewhere and you'd be in with the bricks and you'd be talking to people and there'd be people to give you advice and help you out in the office That's or wherever right. you are. But for writers, it's a, such a solitary thing. You could, it's easy to feel, I don't know what I'm doing next. Who do I turn to for help? All that kind of thing. So it's, it's good to have that, that place it you know you can always turn to. It, it, it is. It's very good. And and also, yeah, I mean, being from the north, rather from London, I'm aware that it's it's very easy to feel that you've been left out of the conversation if, if you're mm-hmm. not part of that London literary set. Yeah. And so I, I thought, you know what, the, the, the internet is actually a really good leveler for that. You can reach out to anybody at all. Um, and I just wanted to 
to try to add to this, this, this very supportive online community that readers have and writers have by actually giving the perspective of somebody who is in a certain position within the publishing world and, and who might have some insights that, 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 they, that they might find useful. But it's, you know, a lot of authors are very reluctant to give away their knowledge as if, as if somehow that would, that would diminish them. And I, I think it's completely the other way around. I think that, you know, the more expertise you can give away to people, the better the author community is. And, and you know, who wouldn't want to do that? No, absolutely. And even I read something, I think it was um, Charlie Strauss said at one point, you know, the ideas, I could give you 10 ideas. That's, you know, I, I wouldn't be worried about me giving you 10 ideas because it's it's the writing of the thing that is the, that is the challenge here. So, yeah, absolutely. you know, a, the, a, a shared community is, is a great thing. And I think that is, you know, Twitter's bad for a lot of reasons, but but um, you know there is quite a supportive community on there and also elsewhere on the internet as well. Yeah, I think I think you know you 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 create the communities you want to create. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Twitter is particularly true of this. If you if you talk about the things that you love on Twitter, the people who love the things that you love will come to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is why this is why we can get these connections online because you know it's it's it is absolutely about people wanting to share their passions and the information that they have and and you know it can be a very powerful tool for good as well as being an awful <laughs> exasperating cesspit sometimes. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, w- w- what's next? What's after the nar- a narrow door? Well, I'm not sure. At the moment, I'm working on uh, an untitled project, which is a standalone thriller. Um, it's It's got a little bit of the supernatural in it, which I'm enjoying, but it's it's also very much set in a very prosaic real world. I'll see what that's going to turn into. And I've got a couple of fantasy projects on the go. I've got, uh, at the moment, I've got uh, a kind of fantasy love story which i'm writing called nectar which which is nearly finished actually and another door it feels like quite a final entry to in the series to me do you think there'll be more in that series or you know is it a case of just waiting to see if inspiration strikes i don't know i'm not sure in a sense i like it to stand as a trilogy but you mm-hmm. know i every time i say this kind of thing i'm i'm always some part of me is always saying you know as soon as you say you can't do something, a bit of me will be working out exactly how <laughs> yeah. to do it. And and so I, that might happen. And I do love that world and that environment so much that uh, I don't quite trust myself to stay away from it for good. <laughs> what was the last book that you read? The last book I read was, and I'm, I'm going to forget the name of the author because I don't know her, but uh, it's called She Who Was the Sun, She Who Became the Sun. And it's the most wonderful fantasy novel, okay, um, literary fantasy novel set in, in the world of 14th century China. And it's, it's, a, it's beautifully put together. Nice. Excellent. And uh, what about the last film that you watched? The last film I watched? Oh, that's a long time. I think it was His House on Netflix. Tremendous yep. horror race fable. Um, beautifully I've done. I've heard of it, but yeah, I've not, I've not watched it's it really, It's things. really nice. It's, it's, it's in the style of Get Out and various other... Um, that's, that's on my list. I mean, the, the whole race fable horror movie thing, I think, has, has kind of raised the bar for English language horror writing and, and I'm really I'm really into what's happening. Nice. Cool. And uh, what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Um Squid Game, if we can no. count Netflix. <laughs> I've Absolutely, just finished yeah. it in fact and uh, we're, we're, we're halfway through. Got, yeah, yeah. I was nailed through. to it of course because <laughs> also being a huge fan of Korean horror, um I, I, I just had to watch it. But it's yes, it was it was interesting and and also slightly sickening and tremendously addictive. 
Yeah. I read that it's the, it's the number one biggest show of all time, apart from Netflix. Just, <laughs> is it really? <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, I don't think anyone would have ever thought that it would end up being so huge, but no, it's, it's, it's very addictive. Well, I think, I think this is um, a factor it, the, the fact that Netflix, all Netflix has to do is put something on its first page. Yeah, and it will so suddenly get this it. enormous amount of traction, and that's that's how that's how to market a show. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, well, the very very last thing we do is a super quick fire, either or. So um, uh, the first one is uh, I'll go for Gaiman or Pratchett. Gaiman. Uh, TV or cinema. TV. Uh, fancy restaurant or a takeaway. Takeaway every time. <laughs> uh, n- night owl or early bird? Uh, early bird, definitely. And uh, last one, print book or ebook? Print book, but I do both. Oh, thank you, Joanne. That was a really great chat and some really uh, intriguing points about why social media is perhaps not the bad thing which people often make it out to be yeah i mean i suppose she's right you kind of make your own community and and yeah you know you can make your social media bad or good depending on who you follow i suppose yeah so, absolutely um yeah well while, while twitter in particular can sometimes be a bit of a cesspool um <laughs> if, if you follow the right people it can cesspool. be yeah it, it can be really useful and yeah. yeah obviously joanne is is great at giving out advice um which as she said she's gathered together in that 10 things about writing book but also yeah. you know starting a story starting a book like honeycomb mm. even if that wasn't her intention at the time on there is is you know it's it's a new way of storytelling in a way it's, yeah it's totally and I, I just just about to say the exact same like it is interesting you know you know you're forced but to write in these small little chunks of text and it maybe does set off that kind of imagination or that you know force you to write something in a different style and maybe does draw a new a new fashion of writing and that is interesting so yeah i, I definitely want to check out the honeycomb book it sounds it sounds very up my street i've just yeah. very interesting so um thanks very much to joanne for coming on really appreciate you her taking the time uh, to do that and obviously you can pick up a narrow door and honeycomb and all of our other books yeah. in your uh, local bookshop or online uh, as you want and we'll put some links to that in the podcast description i should also say that she mentioned that she had read she who became the sun um but couldn't remember who the author was the author is shelly parker chan so if that well sounded remembered. interesting then uh, go and pick that one up as well I should also say that next week we have a very interesting guest coming on, Marco. Simon Beckett, who is a British journalist and author, and uh, he's probably best known for his crime series, which is the David Hunter series, yeah. a forensic anthropologist. 21 million copies sold worldwide, Marco. Yeah, no, it, again, it's a, it's a really good chat with Simon uh, talking about, you know, how he built that series up and, mm-hmm. you know, hearing about his process, which is quite interesting as well. And uh, he's got his latest book, The Lost, is mm-hmm. the start of a sort of new series potentially with a different character. Yeah. Um, and we talk about you know why he wanted to do that. Why you why after a successful series you want to start with a different character, albeit he's not abandoned the the, the previous series. He's no. just uh, having a change, I suppose, change of scene. Um, like as Joanne was saying, in a way, you know, I can I can totally understand that that sort of thing is a good idea to have either standalones or different series to work on because yeah. it kind of keeps you fresh for, for yeah, the stories. I, I really like Joanne Harris's style of having five or six different series of four or five books and kind of bouncing between them. And you're totally right. It does keep you fresh, I think. And you're always, you've always got something you could be writing on next. You never have to worry too much about what they're doing. You've got so many, you've got these options. You can always say, well, I could go back to that one or I've wanted to go back to that one for a while, blah, blah. blah. And yeah, that, that I think is a really nice way of doing it. And it keeps you, from getting too forced to go down by the publishers necessarily to be like, you have to write more of these books. Yeah, that's what absolutely. I was like, having those strings yeah. in your bows, it was really good. And then, so, yeah, it's a really, really good chat with Simon as well. Yeah, so uh, do uh, tune in for that one. Uh, before we go, if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, please do uh, leave us a rating 
and a review if possible on your favorite podcast app we've been getting a few recently actually so thanks very much for that but yeah if we can get more that helps us stay in the charts and helps us to continue to get great guests like joanne and simon if you want to hear stephen king people yeah exactly exactly uh, uh, episode 100 surprise maybe well, let's, not, let's not spoil the surprise too soon <laughs> because don't, even us we, we, we and I not even know exactly who it is yet but, um, uh, you mean this isn't planned Tarek <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course if anybody wants to get in touch they could always send us a tweet in the twitter machine which is at right underscore gear or an email to hello at podcast no Podcast. Hello at podcast. Hello at podcast.com. <laughs> <laughs> podcast at rightgear.co.uk. Yep. I mean, I normally edit that out because Tarek gets it wrong every week. <laughs> Why just, is it not hello? It should I'm, be hello. I'm going to, leave, I'm going to leave it in uh, this week, I think. So uh, have a great week and uh, we'll see you next episode. See you later. 